Welcome to All Ears at Child's Voice, a podcast discussing all things hearing loss. We aim to connect parents of children with hearing loss with the professionals who serve them. I'm Robin Cox, and I'm a large group preschool teacher at Child's Voice. In my room, we try to mimic what a typical preschool classroom is like. We have circle time, read books, sing songs, and have centers playtime, which is their favorite. My favorite thing about working here is getting to teach all of the preschool students, and I love getting to build relationships with the kids and their families. We've been on a short break, but last episode, Tatum and Wendy interviewed Meredith Berger from the Clark Schools for Hearing and Speech in New York. It was a great discussion, so go back and listen if you haven't yet. And now, to start the show. Welcome to another episode of All Ears at Child's Voice. We aim to connect parents of children with hearing loss with the professionals who serve them. We're your hosts. I'm Wendy Dieters. And I'm Tatum Fritz. Today on the show, we are joined by Dr. Michelle Friedner from the University of Chicago. Our topic today is a little different from the subjects that we've discussed on the show so far, but we believe it will be a valuable discussion for our listeners to hear. So today we will be talking with Michelle about the language that we use when it comes to describing hearing loss, hearing technology, and also disability in general, and how this language can influence how people with hearing loss develop and view their identities. It's a big topic, but we are excited to get into this discussion with our guest, Michelle. Yeah, Michelle, thank you for being on the show. Um, Michelle is a social and medical anthropologist and works as an assistant professor in the Department of Comparative Human Development at the University of Chicago. She has a bachelor's degree in religious studies from Brown University and received a master's degree in anthropology from UC Berkeley and her PhD from the Joint Medical Anthropology Program at the University of California at Berkeley and San Francisco. Michelle has written a variety of publications, including books, book chapters, and articles focused on hearing loss, deafness, and disability, with a special focus on the deaf population in India. Michelle, many of our listeners are parents and professionals who work with hearing loss, and I think we're a little bit less familiar with the field of anthropology. So can you share what it means to be a social and medical anthropologist? Sure. Thank you for that question. I just asked that a lot. So I think historically we would think of anthropology as the study of culture, specifically cultures in other places. So historically anthropologists would go to other seemingly exotic places and study people who are different from them and attempt to understand those people in terms of what's important to them and in terms of their experiences and their values. More recently, anthropology has moved away from the study of culture as a concept because culture can be seen as something that's quite static. So if we say this is American culture, or this is Indian culture, or this is deaf culture, or this is hearing culture, it doesn't really allow us to see nuance, and it doesn't allow us to see the ways that cultures are actually changing and mixed up and interrelated and complicated. So what I like to say when I talk about social and medical anthropology is that it's the study of people's experiences and it's the study of what's important to them. Now, you asked also about social and medical anthropology. So, I mean, increasingly they are mixed up and they are connected in the sense that social anthropology has traditionally been the study of people's everyday life, people's social worlds, people's experiences, and so on. And medical anthropology was the study of medicine 
mm-hmm. and the study of medical expertise treated as a culture, right, or treated as an experience. Yeah. So we like to say in anthropology that we are making the strange familiar and the familiar strange. So what that might mean is I might look at both of you and say, hmm, you guys are you know, professional therapists. What are the values that you hold? What is the part of the culture that you are part of? What are the foundational principles? You know, and I would analyze those. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Yeah. How do you put that into practice right now? So what do you do at the University of Chicago putting all of these things together? So... What's interesting about the University of Chicago is that we are on the quarter system as opposed to the semester system. Mm -hmm. And so traditionally, I teach two quarters of the year. So I teach in winter and spring. Mm -hmm. I teach two courses a quarter. Um, I teach a course on the anthropology of disability, where we look at disability as a category and as an identity in global and local contexts. I also teach in the core. The university has a strong core curriculum. So I teach social theory in the core, and I teach two graduate seminars that are usually courses that I choose. And then the rest of the time, I'm doing research and I'm writing. And the way that we do anthropological research is through participant observation. And what that means is spending time with people to see what's important to them and to see what's happening, you know, in people's everyday lives or in the clinic or in the classroom or -hmm. in the home. We also do interviews. But for me, I find it much more rewarding to do participant observation so that I can see how people interact in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Like you observed our toddler group this morning and asked a lot of great questions about how we as Child's Voice see hearing loss, the therapy that we're providing, even the language we use. I know the word blended came up for a blended preschool and you hadn't heard that word before. And that was something that you asked more about from a language perspective or the rhetoric behind what we're doing, which I think on a day-to-day basis, we don't always have time to think about that as therapists. We think more about like the direct goals that we're working on with kids and less about the philosophy behind it. I heard you also mention part of the year you're doing research. So do you mind sharing a little bit about the research that you've been involved with? So historically, my research has been on deaf communities in India. So I started working with Indian Sign Language using deaf young adults. And I looked at how they tried to create political, social, and more worlds in which value was attached to deafness. So they saw deafness and sign language as something that should be valued, and they wanted society and the state to recognize it as such. And so for that book, I spent a lot of time with deaf signers in different spaces. So I was in schools, I was in vocational training programs, I was in workplaces, I was at home with people, and I was just looking at how people were making worlds for themselves, how they were actively trying to create worlds that were useful for them and inhabitable. So then I went back to India in 2016 after my book came out, and I saw that many of the state governments and the central government had started these innovative programs to provide below poverty line children with cochlear implants free of cost. And I was very interested in these programs and thinking about how they were transforming 
how we think about deafness in India. And I decided that I wanted to study this and to turn my attention to the experiences of cochlear implant users and to the emergence of new categories in relation to deafness. So I'm very interested in what it means to talk about a deaf person who hears or a deaf hearer. Yeah, and I think that that's really relevant to a lot of the families that listen to this podcast. I think a lot of the families that listen to the podcast have kids with cochlear implants who are learning to listen and talk. They're being raised by parents who are hearing, and that's something I'm interested in, falling in between the two categories. And then I think it's an interesting question of how do we think about it not as falling in between two categories, but as a category in and of itself. Yeah, Yeah, it can be an identity of its own. So we'll get into that. There's one quick follow-up I had about your research. You said that the main way that you like to research different populations is to integrate yourself within them or like participate within them. So how do you do that in a way that you don't feel like you're intruding or changing the way that the people that you're observing are behaving? That's a really important question, and it's something that we all struggle with all of the time, because by nature of being there, we do change the environment. And I think we have to just account for that and be reflective about what it is that we're doing. And I definitely feel like I've been in therapy sessions where I just wanted to sit back and observe, but the therapist or the parent or even the child started talking to me And I was also included in the session in some ways. And I think it's always a negotiation and it's always something to be mindful of, especially when you're working in a different country and you are clearly a different nationality and a different race and you have different economic and educational privileges. So you mentioned your research in India and it sounds like The deaf community there influenced policy changes, but what about social changes, the social perception of deafness? How have you seen that change over the past few years? So what I think is really interesting in relation to that is that the current government is very much focused on disability as a category. They've unveiled an Accessible India campaign. There's a new disability law. They signed and ratified the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. So yes, there's been a lot of policy change, you know, but I think your question about how does that actually trickle down into everyday life is a really important one. And one thing that I found is that Indians, and this is probably a generalization, but I do think that For the most part, Indians have a wider range of communicative practices that they use. So what I mean by that is that they're often more comfortable gesturing, they're more comfortable pointing, they're more comfortable touching, and they're more comfortable improvising. And so what I think that means is that deaf people often have interactions out in public that are quite seamless, whether it's going to the shop and buying a banana or a kilo of bananas or going to buy a pot to cook with. These are things that happen seamlessly. And so I do think on an everyday level, people are quite accommodating and quite oriented to trying to build a life with those around them, which I find really interesting and really rewarding. 
sometimes I wonder if there's tension between how these top-down approaches and how these bottom-up approaches work. Because you can have laws and you can have legislation and you can have policy with this question of how does it impact what's happening on the ground? And then how does what's happening on the ground, how does that trickle back up or how does that flow back up? I'm not sure. But I do find that for the most part, deaf signers are pretty well integrated into their families and communities and into the surrounding environment. There are definitely challenges when it comes to education and when it comes to employment. I've worked with a number of families from all over India, and every family that I've worked with seems to have their own individual story. It's just all been very fascinating to meet all these families from very different cultures, even though they're from the same country. Yes, and it's an incredibly diverse Mm -hmm. country in terms of class, religion, geography. So many different languages. Yes. Yes. And I think the fact that there are so many different languages makes it so that people are more able to and willing to negotiate. So I think we could make a whole podcast episode out of your research on India, but let's move on to our main idea. And before we do that, you may have seen in the notes that we sent you that we usually ask us for like a fun story or like something heartwarming, something that they can share from the past week, just to get our listeners a little bit aware of like who you are as a person. It doesn't have to be related to hearing loss or the topic, just something funny, heartwarming, cute. So this week was picture day at my child's school. And my child has worn cat ears to her picture day and in her individual and class photo for the last three years. And so this year she went to school with her cat ears on already for her photos. And she also wore a bow tie and a collared shirt. She said she wanted to wear a tuxedo, but we did not have a tuxedo at home. And so she wore a bow tie and a collared shirt and her cat ears. Oh, that's adorable. That's really cute. How old is she? She's seven. And I have to say, I was a little bit worried that she might be teased or that somehow something might happen that would make her feel not good about herself. But in fact, it worked out really well. Thanks for sharing that story about your daughter. That's really cute. So why don't we jump into the main discussion? As we said at the beginning, we wanted to have you on the show today to discuss how the language we use when discussing hearing loss influences how the children that we work with view their identities. Our listeners vary from like professionals to parents, so also just like the language that our parents are using. So if you are comfortable doing so, could you tell our listeners about your own experience with hearing loss and how it informs your identity? Yes, thank you for that question. So I identify as deaf. I have a severe to profound loss. I wore hearing aids from the age of three when my parents found my hearing loss to the age of 34. And when I was 34, I got a cochlear implant on one side. And then recently, when I was 41, I got a cochlear implant on the other side. I grew up speaking. I was always mainstreamed. If people ask how I identify myself, I will say I identify as deaf, and I learned sign language when I was in my 20s. And I should say that going to India and working with Indian signing deaf people also made me a lot more comfortable as a signer. And then as an adult, I've been interacting with a lot of deaf academics, 
and deaf community members, and that's been really wonderful. And I should also say, in terms of identity, one joke that we often tell in my family is sometimes when we go to the store or we go to the dry cleaners or random places, people will say, oh, you have an accent. Where are you from? (laughs) And I say, well, I'm from the U.S. And they'll say, no, really, where are you from? And I'll say, well, I'm from (laughs) Deafville. That's a good one. And then they'll say, oh, Deafville? Where is that? And so my daughter has actually gotten really into that, too. And she'll often say, my mama is from Deafville. But then last night or a few nights ago, she said to me, you know there's not really a place called Deafville, don't you? (laughs) So Wendy's parents have hearing loss, and they also got cochlear implants as adults. I mentioned that because they decided as adults to get cochlear implants, and Wendy was our first guest speaker. She talked about that experience and her experience growing up being raised by her parents. How was that experience for you getting an implant as an adult? Maybe just like very briefly, since that's not our main topic, but what prompted you to make that decision? Well, I had met a lot of deaf adults who had gotten them as adults, and they were finding them to be very beneficial for the most part, and it seemed like an interesting thing to do, and it seemed like something that would be beneficial. And so I thought, why not go ahead and do it based on the testimony that I had heard from other adults? And so I decided to do it. This was while I was still in graduate school. Mm -hmm. And so I had time, and I had a great insurance plan that covered it. (laughs) And yes, for me, it was a very positive experience. I mean, it took a while in the beginning for my brain to adjust and for my body to adjust. But after I did it, I found it really helpful in the sense that I no longer had to lip read as much. And I felt like I didn't have to work as hard Mm -hmm. to hear. And to me, that was really wonderful. So when you decided to move forward with the cochlear implant, how did you decide which ear to do? We chose the worst ear. Okay. Yeah. Similar to what my parents experienced. And... What made you make that decision of choosing the poorer ear, if you don't mind my asking? It seemed like the smarter thing to do, um, in the sense that if it didn't work, there was less loss. There was also a sense that something could go wrong. And so for that, I think my audiologist and I chose to do the worst ear. And I should say that I think this practice of older adults who have not used technology, choosing to use technology is very interesting. You know, when we think about people becoming pioneers in relation to technology, in relation to plasticity, and in relation to their bodies, I think this is a really interesting practice that should be studied more. Traditionally and historically, we've divided up the world into the deaf world and the hearing world, or deaf culture and hearing culture. And I think what we're seeing is a lot more complex now. And I think these worlds, in the plural, are increasingly intermingled and that people do move in and out of worlds and combine worlds. And I should say that in the discipline of deaf studies, which I can talk more about if you'd like, and in the anthropology of deafness and disability, we are increasingly using plurals. So we talk about deaf cultures, We talk about deaf worlds, deaf communities, sign language communities, 
And I think it's really important to add nuance to these discussions because I think it's really harmful to set up binaries and to set up these black and white, really rigid divisions that don't actually exist on the ground. I wonder if this is a very comforting thing for parents to hear. But as you say, there is fluidity between deaf hearing. The decision that they make to move forward with a cochlear implant for their child doesn't mean that that decision can't shape over time, depending on what the child experiences and what the family goes through. Yeah, and I think it's really important to take seriously the fact that children can have multiple identities, you know, multiple communities, multiple and intersecting communities and worlds. I do want to say that I take seriously a lot of the stories that I hear from parents about feeling shamed and vilified, villainized by what they call deaf culture activists or deaf community activists. I personally have never seen this. That doesn't mean it doesn't take place. And it doesn't mean that I don't take it seriously. And I feel really horrible when I hear about these things because no parent should ever feel shame for a decision that they're making, as long as it is an informed decision. Probably the majority of my experience has been working with families who mostly only use spoken language, but we have a lot of families, especially recently, that have been using both, and they've had some experience with that. And I think, just like you're mentioning, this idea that there is like a binary puts a lot of pressure on families. And I think as therapists, too, I know I have become more confident in my prognosis, for lack of a better word, about where a child is going to end up. And that gives me a little bit more flexibility in, you know, working with families and really not being afraid of them not choosing one of the binary options because you can still achieve the same goals with many different ways. I agree. And I do think that children, again, can move in and out of spaces. They can be comfortable in signing spaces. They can be comfortable in spoken language spaces. They can be comfortable in gestural spaces. Children grow and develop and move through multiple types of spaces and modalities. And I think that's amazing. You know, we talk a lot about tinkering. We talk a lot about adjusting. We talk a lot about flexibility. And I think it's important for children to be exposed to different things and families as well. One of the things that I am often concerned about is that sometimes it seems like parents are not told about their choices. I don't know how much that happens in the U.S. I know in India, when I talk to parents, they're not often told that Indian Sign Language is an option. I remember talking with one mother, and she thought that Indian Sign Language was the gesture system that she was using at home. And she was amazed to learn that there was something called Indian Sign Language with a lexicon and a grammar that was incredibly robust. And this was not the mother's fault. Right. Yeah, you know, this right. was actually no. a mother who had looked for a lot of resources yeah. and who had traveled from a small town to Delhi in seeking resources. 
I think every family might have a different story about how they were presented with communication opportunities and how that was presented to them. I like the way you're using the word opportunities. Communication opportunities is a term that I've heard often, and I'm trying to adopt that as well. It's better than if we go back to trying to get away from a binary. If you say option, it means you have to choose one and that's it. But if you have opportunities, you can have multiple opportunities. And I think the other thing about options, so there was a recent dissertation done in Belgium by a recent PhD awardee, Lisbeth Matthews, and she found that parents were presented with options, but then sign language was only an option when the child was said to need it. So it was something that a child needed not necessarily something that a child would choose. And I thought that was interesting. I have one follow-up question about your own identity. So you got a cochlear implant as an adult. Did that change your view on your own identity in any way? It did not. The one thing that has been really interesting, especially after getting the second implant, is that without the implants on, I think I'm deafer audiologically than the majority of my deaf friends. So I may hear better with my implants in a sound booth. However, without the implants, I am actually deafer audiologically. And so that extreme has been quite startling to work with. Do you think that's a result of the surgery itself or your brain training itself to hear and then having that sound taken away. That's really interesting. I assumed that it was because of the surgery, but maybe not. Or maybe it's both. Yeah, it could be a combination. I don't have the answer to that. Yeah, hearing is so fascinating. And the brain is so fascinating. And I was going to say, in relation to your question about how my identity has changed post-implant, I would say that I am perhaps deafer and more hearing, right? And so in some ways, I inhabit both of these extremes, right? And if you think about deafness as a spectrum, I think I can exist at different points on the spectrum at various points during the day. And I think it's interesting. I don't think that I've ever stopped seeing myself as deaf. I do remember when I went for testing recently being very amazed and amused by the fact that my audiologist said, wow, you're almost normal, you know, or you almost have normal hearing. And I found that intriguing. Yeah, that is very interesting. And then as a follow-up to that, you also learned sign language as an adult. Did that change your identity in any way? Not really. I think learning sign language gave me another tool and another language, for sure, to use to communicate. But I don't think it changed my identity. Because I think I always had an identity of myself. I always saw myself as a deaf person. And I've always identified as a deaf person. And I do think we talk a lot about this binary, again, in terms of binary, it's those deaf hearing, and then there's lowercase d and capital D. For parents who might not know about that, historically, I think actually in... It might have been in the 1980s, I have to go back to my notes, but James Woodward, who's a linguist, um, made a distinction between lowercase d and capital 
D, and he was talking about lowercase d as marking hearing status or audiological status, while capital D was marking identity categories and marked deaf people as linguistic minorities. And ever since that distinction was made, people have grabbed it and they've ran with it. And what happened as a result is in published articles and in deaf studies and anthropology articles, people have often been asked about their language choices. Why are you writing this with a lowercase d? Why are you writing this with a capital D? You know, why do you use this way of doing it as opposed to that way? But recently in 2016, James Woodward wrote an article in which he said the way that this distinction has become so overblown is really problematic. And he was only writing about a specific case in America and a specific time and that he had no interest or intention of this becoming an orthodoxy. Yeah. And I think it's also interesting to think if you were going to take that binary seriously, you need the lowercase in order to have the capital, right? And so there's a way that these two are constitutive of each other. They create each other. But I think once you get deeply into people's everyday experiences and spending time with people, you see that that binary is really hard to hold up. It doesn't hold up analytically, so as a researcher, it's really hard to work with. I think I understand what people are doing politically. You know, politically, what they're trying to do is they're trying to carve out a space of value for deafness. You know, they're trying to say, look, I'm deaf and I'm proud of it. And deafness does not always mean deficit. I don't know if either of you are familiar with the 2014 book called Deaf Gain. I've heard the term deaf gain on NPR, actually, because when A Quiet Place came out, mm-hmm. was it? I think it's A Quiet Place. Yeah, have you seen that movie? A Quiet Place. You haven't seen it, Wendy? No. Do you not like horror movies? I don't. My <laughs> husband watched it, and he told me that I had to, and then he told me the entire plot of the movie, so now I don't need to this watch it. Scary. It sounds terrifying. Um, no, thank you. I like scary movies, so it did not scare me, but it is quite good. I like John Krasinski, too, so that was one reason I wanted to watch it. I can't remember who they were interviewing on NPR, because I feel like it wasn't someone related to the movie. They were just talking about the concept of deaf gain, and they talked about how in that movie, the girl who signs has hearing loss had a cochlear implant. I can't remember if... I think the father was developing a cochlear implant. If you watch that part, I don't think all of that was audiologically accurate. They were talking about how the concept of her deafness was a positive, because in this society where, listeners, if you haven't seen this movie, you have to be very quiet to avoid this new kind of alien that hunts people via sound. This family already had this language that they were able to use in a quiet manner. I know deaf people who sign are not always very quiet, but they were able to use the language in a quiet way to avoid the alien species or whoever had invaded. And they talked about how that's a concept of deaf gain. But I didn't know there was a book on it. Well, there's a book. It's called Deaf Gain, Uh Raising the Stakes of Human Diversity. And the argument that the editors and the different authors in the book make is that deaf people contribute to human diversity. They contribute language. They contribute beautiful sign language. They contribute visual acuity to workplaces. They contribute artistic practices like arts, 
music, movies, poetry, and so on. And so the argument is really trying to make space for deafness as something that's valued, which is sometimes why I think the idea of hearing loss is something that makes me cringe. Mm-hmm. You know, so, which, and I think in some ways, deaf as a category avoids some of that deficit language um, because I think hearing loss, loss automatically assumes that something is missing. And what the authors of Deaf Gain are trying to do is they're trying to say, instead of thinking about hearing loss and how I've lost my hearing, let's think about the things that we gain because of deafness. On the other hand, if we're talking about nuance, you know, I think parents do greet and children also grieve, and it's certainly difficult to grow up as a deaf person who is different from everyone else. And so I think we need space for both celebratory logics and for acknowledging ways of being in the world that can be painful. Yeah. But then the question of whether that pain comes from the hearing loss itself or from social and structural barriers and educational barriers is something that I think we also need to consider. We interviewed a psychotherapist who works with deaf and hard of hearing people and families of deaf and hard of hearing children. And she talked a lot about grief, like the initial grief that families can go through, like post-diagnosis, this grief that may occur later on where they realize that the world is not always accommodating to people with hearing loss. And I think there's different types of grief. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's always interesting to think about there's really wonderful literature and anthropology on the senses and specifically on the sensorium and the ways that for many deaf people, they don't experience a world every day in which they're working through deficit or a loss. I don't feel like I'm missing something, although now I do in the sense that without the implant, I do feel like there's a dramatic shift that I then need to negotiate. But there's also a loss that comes when I put on the implant and I'm confronted with loud sound. So there's a loss both ways or there's a shift both ways that happens. I think something that I've experienced parents struggling with it speaks to what you just said about wanting to honor their child for who they are, but also wanting to give their child the communication opportunity as we're using that term of listening and spoken language because they want them to be able to either navigate any world that they choose or you know this is their world 90 percent of children with hearing loss are born to hearing parents so I think that there's a struggle between those two thoughts can you tell us some of your views on that that's a great question And I think parents do want children to be like them, and they also want children to have easy paths, paths in which there is not a lot of friction, paths in which children can seamlessly move through life. If I can just jump in for a second, I think that's so attainable now, Mm -hmm. which is a vast difference, I know, from 30, 40, 50 years ago. We have many babies that are implanted under the age of one. I wonder if those children will ever identify as deaf because they will grow up very differently. Right. And then that is a very interesting question. And do we want those children to identify as deaf? 
I think as a therapist that that's not our place to say. One reason why we wanted to have you on is parents think a lot about identity and concepts of identity. They'll ask me how they should talk to their children about their hearing, about their devices. As a hearing therapist, I feel like it's not my place to say, but it's very interesting that they're thinking about it. Something that's really cool that we've seen over the past few years is young adults with cochlear implants as teachers. We have two teachers at Child's Voice that have cochlear implants. Mm-hmm. I know some audiologists. Yeah, I know lots of audiologists, audiologists with cochlear implants. It's, it's incredible. I think there are so many different reasons for that. But it's exciting that we live in that time that there are all these reasons. People have more opportunities and more things that they can choose because we want to maximize possibilities that people have available to them. Similarly, we want to maximize the identity categories that people have available to them. And one of the things we talk a lot about now in social sciences and humanities is the concept of intersectionality and the idea that people and children, children being included in the category of people, (laughs) occupy and inhabit multiple identities and that these identities rub up against each other and then come to create new identities as well. How do we help families frame this? How do we help them celebrate their child in all of these different ways? Celebrate their listening and spoken language, but also celebrate the fact that they have cochlear implants. How do we do that? It's an interesting and important question, and I don't quite have the answer yet in terms of what that identity category should be called. Is that what's coming from your research? Yes. Oh, great. I'm hoping to talk more to implant users and to talk more to people who are experiencing this themselves. I think it needs to be a category that somehow celebrates the humanity of the person and the person's interactions with the machines because I think it really is about the person's agency. So I like the idea of the deaf hearer or hearing deaf person. I like the idea of putting those two categories together. Yeah, I've heard that term used recently. Yeah. So the thing that I find problematic is when parents try to just ignore, and again, I'm speaking normatively here, I understand that for both of you, it's really important to honor and respect the choices that parents make. But for me as a researcher and also as a deaf person myself, I can say that I do find it problematic when the word deaf is never in the conversation at all. Because I think that also means that children might ultimately be left with fewer resources. What happens if the implant dies, right? What happens if the child needs to advocate for themselves? You know, what happens if the child wants to take advantage of the Americans with Disabilities Act or other disability legislation? They unfortunately or fortunately need the category of deafness to do that, right? And whether we like it or not, the category of deafness still has legal purchase in our society. And I think that's really important. So I'm not a parent, but I feel like I can sympathize with parents who we've talked about earlier. They want their child to be like them. So I understand why some parents might use language like Mm -hmm. that we've discussed so far. But this is one reason why we kind of wanted to broach this idea on the podcast, because this is something that doesn't really come up in therapy 
we don't really know the best way to navigate with this with families. I just feel like it's an important topic that it's more than just working on speech and hearing and listening language goals. There is this identity component to these children that we shouldn't be ignoring. And I think if we're going to think about lifting children's identities or the ways that parents can sit down with children and say, so who are you? You're deaf. You're hearing. You're blonde. You're a girl. You're a boy. You are Jewish. You're Christian. You're Mexican. You're American. You have all of these identities, and they make you who you are. And I think it's important to look at the ways that saying I'm hearing doesn't cancel out the fact that you're deaf. And saying that you're deaf doesn't cancel out the fact that you're also hearing. I've interviewed deaf adults, and one deaf adult told me, well, I'm not really hearing because the implant that I get through my implant is fake hearing, Hmm. which I thought was interesting and actually factually inaccurate because... It was hearing, and to call it fake is problematic. So you observed our toddler group today, and one of our parents in our toddler group was sharing a picture of a baby doll that they have at home that they use puffy paint to paint hearing aids on the baby doll, which is really smart because I see these for sale online, and they're very expensive to buy a doll with hearing accessories. So parents, just a little tip, get puffy paint at the craft store. But I have noticed for this family, they wanted a doll at their home that represented their child's own identity. Their child uses hearing aid. Their doll has hearing aids. We also have at our toddler group, obviously, most of our kids are using devices. And a lot of our families will point out each other's devices. Look, she has cochlear implants. Like, you have cochlear implants. And her cochlear implants are white. And yours are black. And even some of our kids who are her getting closer to three and have higher language will start commenting on other kids' cochlear implants. It's really cool. You know, we've mentioned this on the podcast before. One of the things that we do at Child's Voice in the Primary 2 program is a self-advocacy curriculum where the children learn how to talk about their devices and how to talk about advocating for themselves. And it's really incredible. They get really good at it. And it's really cool to see them have their own language about themselves. It's not something that we hide in any way or teach kids to not honor or teach them to be ashamed of it. We teach them, this is what you have, and this is how you can advocate for yourself if you feel that you're not having access to everything that you should. And I think it's really interesting how we now use the language of access. Mm -hmm. So one thing we also wanted to talk about today is just how the language of our field has changed over time. In the listening and spoken language side of things, things have changed a lot. I'm actually studying for the listening and spoken language exam right now, so I was reading some of the history. Um, And I hadn't heard the term occupedics before. (laughs) There's so many terms for auditory oral, auditory verbal, occupedics, unisensory. Unisensory. Yeah, I hadn't heard that before. Multisensory approaches. Yeah, so this was above me even just like two days ago. But what kind of changes have you seen in the listening and spoken language world or like the auditory verbal therapy world and what interests you about those changes? Well, it seems like there's a lot more focus on the brain and on plasticity. It also seems like there's more focus on multimodality increasingly. I think there was just an article in an ASHA publication about the importance of adding multimodal resources to one's toolkit. 
which I found very interesting. There's more of a focus on so-called natural communication and on giving children access to multiple sensory input. And this is where the language of access also comes in because we talk more about access and what children have access to through their devices, what type of auditory access they have, what types of linguistic access they have, and so on. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think as I've been in the field, again, as we see how incredibly successful these children are, we trust ourselves a little bit more, we trust the technology a little bit more, and we trust development a little bit more. The other thing that I was just going to say in relation to what we were talking about before in terms of categories, um, one thing that I've been trying to think a lot about is the idea of multiple normals. Mm -hmm. So I wrote a piece for the New England Journal of Medicine, which will hopefully be published sometime this year, that is introducing the concept of multiple normals to clinicians working with children with hearing loss or deaf children, and this idea that there are multiple ways to be normal, you know, and we might say we don't like the word normal, but for better or worse, people use it constantly, right? So how do we become oriented towards, or how do we come to realize that hearing aids and implants and sign languages are just as normal as anything and everything else? How does community inform identity? Earlier on this season, we had one of our alum on, and she uses cochlear implants. She talked about how she navigates the hearing world very well, and her spoken language is very good. Uh, She was talking about how they're able to relate to each other on a different level. So I think of that as almost as being like this separate community that you're speaking about. So I think most of the, the, they're mostly teenagers, but the children in that community use spoken language. They have devices, and she has a sense of community that is different than the community that she gets with hearing people. Yeah, and I wonder, though, if community is the right concept to use here. I don't know. I think, again, you know, we get into these concepts like community and culture and world and social group, and these somehow feel like bounded Mm -hmm. categories. So one of the things that I worked on with a colleague is this idea of deaf sameness and we talked about again this is with signers Uh but we talked about how very often when deaf people who sign across the world when they meet each other they'll sign oh you're deaf I'm deaf for the same right and so there's a sense of sameness or a sense of similitude and I wonder if that is what your alum is thinking about too that there is a sense of sameness Mm -hmm. there's a relationality there's a shared experience that exists and so what do we call that shared experience is it affinity is it an understanding is it a shared way of being in the world because in a way yes they are a community but it's a community that's not bounded by place or time Mm -hmm. or it's a community that might pop up when two people encounter each other and it could just be two people who encounter each other and they both have devices or they both had a similar experience being mainstream and so how do we think about those experiences and honor them and take them seriously I think continuing to talk to people like our alums and like families of children who received implants at a very young age continuing to talk to them and bring them together with one another 
will hopefully help answer some of these questions that we all have because it's really up to them. Yes. It's not us. Yes. I don't think we should be the ones to decide what to call any group of people that it should be their decision. Right. Um, so as we continue to communicate with them, they'll give us the answers. I think that's right. And I think it would be amazing to have a workshop or some sort of meeting where people are brought together and they can think about this and think about what identity categories they might use. I think that's why we try really hard to bring people together. That's why we have a toddler group, to bring kids together so that they can participate in an environment that's accessible to them and they can also see children with devices that are similar to them and then the parents get to interact with one another and families that we work with at home we try to connect them with other families who have similar shared experiences because they can get something from each other that we can't provide we've been talking for a while so let's start wrapping up a couple of areas that we were interested in hearing your thoughts on are the language that we use to describe a child's hearing loss if you want to share a little bit about that Yes, so that's something that I struggle with, too, because people will often ask me what my level of hearing loss is. It's very interesting, actually, to be in the field interacting with professionals as part of my research because people always say, well, what is your level of hearing loss? How many dB loss do you have? (laughs) Are you severe? Are you moderate? Are you profound? What are you? And I can say that I personally don't use those categories in everyday life. I use the category of death. I don't really go into my audiogram and what it looks like. And one thing that I think is really important is for professionals to think about how they use language and to not use deficit language when talking about failing hearing tests. So as opposed to saying, your child failed the hearing test, perhaps they can say, we see this on the hearing test. You know, we see that your child is hearing at this level. Mm-hmm. You know, we see that there is a discrepancy between typical hearing and this level of hearing. I understand that often professionals want to impart urgency, but at the same time, there can be something very devastating about hearing that your child has failed something. And I think this language of failure is something that stays with parents and with children. I don't know if you guys saw the listening project. Is that what it's called? Irene Brosky's movie? Was it? The one where they interviewed a bunch of people with... A bunch of kids. Yeah. Uh-huh. And they talked about a lot of things. Yes. And yes, I think I have seen that. And so there was one woman in that movie, in The Listening Project, who, she's a surgeon now, and she talked about exactly this experience of remembering being in a sound booth and being told that she failed the hearing test. Yeah. And, and her response during the movie were to say, I was just devastated when I heard this because I don't fail anything. I'm a straight A student. I'm a surgeon now. I don't fail things, you know. And I think it's really important to think about what that language of failure does for parents. Yeah, that's very interesting. I think, too, even on a pragmatic level, when it comes to full ideological testing, it's not helpful to say the word failed because we know that hearing is a spectrum and you might be at a different level. There's a difference between a moderate loss and a severe loss, so having the word failed is not very helpful, just in a pragmatic sense. In fact, this exists in other parts of the speech pathology field, like people will say you failed a swallow study, which is also not 
very helpful because you don't fail a solo study. There's a range of things that are found on a solo study, and you need to know what that range is, just like you need to know what this audiogram means. So the concept of failed is not helpful. One area where I see the word failed the most is the newborn hearing screening. Parents will use the terminology failed, and I don't know if that's what they're hearing in the hospital because like our terminology is referred on the newborn hearing screening. As someone who does initial evaluations and early intervention, if you ask, like, did your child refer on the newborn hearing screening, families aren't familiar with that terminology. So I get the sense of why failed is used, but I also understand the connotation of it. Another question we wanted to ask you is, what are your thoughts on person-first language? So, for example, saying a person with hearing loss versus identity-first language, so a deaf and hard of hearing person. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I know that there are people who have very strong feelings about this, Uh and there's been a lot written in terms of both. So my thoughts are I honor and respect whatever a person chooses to be called. I personally prefer identity-first language, and the reason for that is because I think that a person with hearing loss implies that the hearing loss is static, that it's something that's separate from the person as opposed to being something that A, changes with time, and B, influences and makes up who that person is. And then I also often will refer to myself as a disabled person. And the reason that I don't say I'm a person with disability, again, is because disability is not a static category. It's a a processual interactive category. And I take seriously what disability activists and disability scholars say about disability being caused in the environment and disablement as something that happened to the person. So I've always used identity-first language. I've also noticed this topic has probably been around a lot longer than I've been aware of it, but I've seen conversations about this in the disability community, in the autism community, and I think it's something that I refer to the parents usually because we are working with children. So I I tend to try to mirror the language that at least they're currently using. I wanted to bring that up on the show because I feel like a lot of our listeners probably haven't heard of this conversation. So That's a very heated conversation. Yes. I follow a lot of disability rights activists on Twitter as well. It is very heated. Just what you said, you honor what the parents use. Mm -hmm. You know, the child can't speak for themselves just yet. Mm -hmm. So until that happens, it's a parents' job to speak for their children. So for better or for worse, you mirror what the parents use because it's their choice. It's their child. So why don't we start wrapping up there? So the last thing we always like to ask our guests is for any general advice. So this could be anything that would be good for our listeners to hear. So, and as a reminder, our listeners are parents and professionals. So for me, I think it's really important to embrace multiple normals and to work toward a world in which there are multiple ways of being normal. And that includes deaf hearing or hearing deaf or whatever you want to call yourself or your child, for lack of a better word. And I also think it's important to do away with binaries and to think about communities and cultures and worlds and networks in the plural and to really recognize complexity that exists because people are complicated and we don't want to reduce them to a binary or to an either or. 
why can't children and families be both end? So I think that would be the one piece of advice I have. It's good to remember as a professional too. And like you said, Tatum, as a hearing person, right? Like we have a different experience than our families have. And to always keep that in mind is really important. So thank you. Been so fascinating. Yeah, I can't believe it's been so long. (laughs) Thank you. Sorry. Thank you. So, why don't we wrap things up there? Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. This has been fascinating. Thank you so much for having me. And if people are interested in reaching out to me, they can email me. Um, My name is Michelle Friedner. That's M I C H E L E F R I E D N E R at uchicago.edu. Perfect. And we'll also list that in our show notes, listeners. And I welcome correspondence and contact and yeah. communication. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of All Ears at Child's Voice. And if you would like to reach out to us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Tatum Fritz SLP and Wendy is at Wendy Dieters SLP. You can also email us at podcast at childsvoice.org, and you can find episode show notes and transcripts at our Child's Voice website, childsvoice.org. And if you're interested in learning more about Child's Voice, Child's Voice is on Facebook, as well as Twitter and Instagram with the handle at childs underscore voice, no apostrophe. We'll see you next time. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in and listening to Season 3. This is the last official episode of Season 3, but stay tuned for a mini-episode that will be released soon. In the upcoming mini-sode, Wendy and Tatum will reflect on Season 3 and share their plans for future seasons.